it's fascinating that one of the most radical um, yes. anti-imperialist kind of democratic organising examples actually has been somewhat the beneficiary of the global hegemon of the USA, but they're doing it without ever telling anybody that they're doing <laughs> yes. it. Well, that's the thing. I think we're all in that boat, aren't we? Right. No, to a degree. We're in the yeah. shadow of the behemoth, as a recent podcast guest right. called it, which is collapsing and right, we, we come is. up in totally. the shadow. Yeah. yeah totally. So you mentioned the differences to, to our structure, hierarchical structure. Mm. I mean, let's remember we're a federation, so it wasn't entirely mm. meant to be. Mm. Yeah, but anyway, that, mm. that aside for the moment. But it became so very quickly. Didn't it? Yeah. But it doesn't have to be. So let's reference Barcelona right. in mm. this context. Talk to us about that, that mm. case. Another amazing example of from crisis comes incredible transformation if you can manage it. Spain was one of the country's hardest and worst hit by the global financial crisis in, in the late 2000s. What's, what's worse, like many of the smaller, um, less, less wealthy and powerful European countries, the, the centralised European government enforced austerity on Spain and forced their government to enforce austerity policies. Um, so where Australia weathered the crisis remarkably well because we actually supported people to be able to go about their lives better. Wasn't it a case in point of what we can do? What we, we can do wow. when you actually have a couple of people like Ken Henry kind of saying, we need to do this. Mm. Um, and I have my disputes with his views of, of the economy and the world, mm. but that was tremendously successful. Mm. Um, in, Basel, in, in Spain, they enforced austerity. They ended up with 25% unemployment. They had 50% youth unemployment across the country. It was yeah. an absolute... So, yeah, people were, people were being forced out of their homes, that people couldn't afford to, to feed themselves and their families, skipping meals, um, couldn't afford medical care. This vast protest movement evolved across, across Spain, the movement of the squares, they called it, and, and huge protests on the streets, doing a lot of really interesting kind of deep democracy, in fact, that they were doing on the streets, as, as people were doing elsewhere around the world, Sintama Square in, in Athens, the Occupy movement in America. All of these were about actually doing citizens' assemblies and things, doing, doing politics differently. And they had some success in various ways around the world and in Spain. In Spain, one of the big things out of, out of the movement of the squares was the establishment of the political party Podemos, which has won some seats and has had some influence, um, but it hasn't been transformative. What happened in Barcelona was rather than focusing on the political first, they focused on the community first, and they started with mutual aid. They started with... Community gardens, working with restaurateurs, working with, with local groups so that they could distribute food and meals to people who couldn't feed themselves. They have a long history of cooperatives and so their, their, their cooperatives worked with their medical providers. So they had cooperative medical providers to, you know, where people who could afford to could pay it forward so that you, those who needed it and couldn't afford the medical care could get it. They had this incredibly powerful, radical housing justice movement where people would actually come out and defend people who were being evicted from their homes and un enable them to stay in their homes and say, this, you know, it's not possible. What are you going to do here? You're not even going to let this apartment because nobody can afford it so just let them yes. stay and um, the empty places we have around australia right. cities, and around the world yeah and around the world yeah. so 
mutual aid was the core of what they were doing in Barcelona, helping each other, helping the community to help itself. And each step of the way, they were being pushed back by government. Government who saw its role as maintaining the power of markets, maintaining the power of corporations, the status quo, business owners, pushing them back. And so with municipal elections coming up, and, and remember that in a lot of Europe, municipal government is kind of equivalent to our state government here. City government is really very powerful. With municipal elections coming up, these mutual aid groups, these people doing this work on the ground came together in a similar way to kind of the Voices for Indi approach with kitchen table community conversations, with, with community hall conversations, and they developed a shared political platform which they called Barcelona in Común, Barcelona in Common. They adopted the platform, they nominated Aracolau, one of their um, one of the leaders of the of the squatters' rights movement, as their mayoral candidate. They ran for election and they won the government of Barcelona. And because they started with the community, because they started with mutual aid and the and the electoral politics was was bolted on afterwards as mm. we need to do this actually because otherwise they're gonna stop us. They worked incredibly hard to not just kind of get into City Hall and, and govern, but to devolve power out of City Hall onto the streets every step of the way. They, they have been working really hard to enable communities to make their own decisions about local planning issues, about control of the water system. This is a really interesting example where other leftist movements want to nationalise things like yeah, water supply, for instance. And that's... Not a solution, in my opinion, because it's still centralised control. Whether yes. it's centralised control by a profit-maximising corporation or centralised control by a government which is still in the same economic system, it's really problematic. What they did in Barcelona was take back ownership by the municipal government but devolve the decision-making power to the local communities. Um, they do that with, with transport, with, with planning, with housing, with water have been working incredibly hard to transform the way they do government, not just the decisions the government is making, but the way they do government. Mm. Um, and one of my favourite things about it is that they see this as a global movement for change. So it's local, it's hyper-local, it's city-based and municipal, and they've been working really hard to connect with other communities and cities around the world. They've held these fearless cities congresses where they bring people together to share ideas and cross-fertilise and inspire each other to do things. It's a municipalist globalism, a localist geopolitics, which is inverting the state-based geopolitics, which causes war, which causes disputes, which stops us from getting shit done all the time, inverting that into a grassroots up globalist mm. municipalism. You know, you've just triggered in my mind one of another one of the moments reading your book because I had only just been introduced to the work of Eleanor Ostrom. <gasps> only just. Yeah. And then I read the I almost flicked your book open the next day and it was like, oh my God. Because this happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I figure I'm onto something if this happens, even though I'm late to the party in a way. <laughs> and yet her work, which was showing a lot of this stuff ages ago, yeah. right? And, and was she? She was a Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. She's the first woman to win the Nobel Prize for economics, in yes. fact. Um, even though she wasn't actually an economist, she was an anthropologist. <laughs> Isn't this brilliant? And it was because what you just said then about we are shrinking the state and the market 
Right. Two right size, I would probably add, yeah. right? Just because yeah. the rest has always been there. The home yeah. and the and the neighbourhood, the love economy, Hazel right. Henderson, Henderson used to call it. Yeah. Kate Rayworth talks Kate about it all the yeah. time, you know. Yeah. So just getting it back in keeping with the other economies yeah. and the yeah. other ways of governing ourselves, getting them in right proportions right. and so forth in a way. But she pioneered a lot of this work and her global research, even back then, mm. was saying this is how it works but like everywhere, her yep. research was extensive. Yeah. Her, the focus of her work is on the commons and common pool resources, as, as, as she talked about it. And, and what she's really doing really very deeply, as Kate Rayworth and others do you know, more recently, is challenge this idea that the choice that we have to make is between state and market, and that these are the only two ways of decision-making or of organising the economy. And Ostrom did a tremendous amount of incredibly deep research with communities, as you say, all around the world in how local communities manage common pool resources. And it's, it's really important that the commons is one of those words which has been deliberately kind of misunderstood and mis, misdefined. Totally. And most people who think about the commons, if you think about it at all, will think about this, this frame, the tragedy of the commons, which was put forward by Garrett Hardin, who was who was a white supremacist American geographer, um, actually, who, who didn't really do any work into the commons um, and wrote this very influential essay called The Tragedy of the Commons, where he talked about how a group of people who, who for, for whatever reason, don't talk to each other and don't want to cooperate, if they're all kind of trying to get the most resources out of this one piece of shared land, they'll destroy that piece of land. And, of course, they will. But that's not a description of the commons, it's a description of capitalism. And that cultural context he was in. Right, and the cultural context he was in. So, and he didn't do any research. Ostrom at the same time in the 60s was actually out there doing research with the people who managed the commons. <laughs> she was in, you know, in peasant communities and in indigenous communities around the world learning from how they govern shared resources. And the fundamental point is that they're always discussing it, they're always working it, they're always working out the rules themselves that they agree to be bound by themselves. And she put forward a set of guiding principles of how the commons can be managed effectively and are managed effectively and have been managed effectively for countless millennia until mm. capitalist, imperialist, colonialist, organizing came along and started to destroy it and it's all about communication it's all about the fact that the people who who are going to be bound by the rules of how we share need to be the ones who actually make the rules themselves who coordinate it and that you need good and well-managed um, dispute resolution structures and that you need systems of sanctions where where the group can come together to to sanction those who are abusing the system in some way, um, but always, you know, these graduated sanctions that are always about reintegrating, mm -hmm. not about permanently excluding. And you need you need agreed boundaries. This is one of the really important things as well that you need you need to know where the boundaries of your group lie, not in order to fight or exclude or other the people <laughs> elsewhere, but in order to collectively manage the you know beyond those boundaries um so ostrom's one of her beautiful conceptions is polycentrism um which is you know fundamental to, to murray bookchin and, and and the municipal confederism and, and what they're doing this is where it all ties in all these stories yeah yeah polycentrism is the idea that 
you actually, for instance, she talks about it most, most powerfully in terms of a river system, that the best way to manage a river system is not from one centralised hierarchical control from above, like we do with the Murray-Darling Basin here in Australia, for instance, but... To the point of extinction. To the point of killing it. To the point of killing it. And we still haven't learned the lesson from that. No, Ostrom talks about how if each local community manages their own piece of the river system and then they coordinate in a polycentric way across them so that you know the local community comes together to determine how they work with the river and then each local community sends delegates to work together across the whole river system they will manage it effectively and there are countless examples of of local indigenous and and oh. and farming communities around the world managing river systems healthily for millennia. There it is. And it's just like that community in the Kimberley I was talking about at the town hall saying, right. we know, we know what works. Yeah, yep. we are here. Yep. We are the people that did it. Yep. <laughs> it's yep. here. It's, a, it's worthwhile reinforcing that point that this isn't elusive. Right. If we do want to address this stuff, yep. it's here. We know how to do it. We it's know the how systems to do it. of power that are stopping us centralised political state power and obviously centralised market capitalist power. Yes. Let's briefly touch on one more before we move on to that bit of the how, mm. how we can get to this and the, some of the skill and some of the uh, development of these skills that more of us could perhaps take on to help with these processes. And that's, I mean, you, you said one of the purest examples of living democracy you know the participatory city in London. And I guess if we needed another layer of evidence that places like ours, and even the most divided places of ours, could grapple with this stuff. Yeah, I love this because it's just just so not political or what we would think about as democratic, but it is, it's deeply, deeply democratic. This group started in in South London, in 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 a poor area of South London, which was, not just poor, but but as a consequence of that poverty, quite socially divided, and there were you know um, there was rising racism in that community, and what they what they trialled there and then moved in, into East London into the borough of Barking and Dagenham was setting up these open spaces on high streets in empty storefronts because so many of them <laughs> in poor communities just a space where people could come and chat and meet and talk about what they would like to do. And then this group, Participatory City, would help them to do that thing. And it was often things like a little cooking group where that people could come together and cook together and share food and help each other learn, learn each other's recipes and things like that. Or, or just a, a knitting club or a tool library they set up um, community gardens, that kind of thing. And this has been massively expanded now in Barking and Dagenham where they've got quite a few of these, these, these spots on high streets where really all that, all that the organisation Participatory City is doing is providing people with a space to come and offer what they would like or find someone else who's thinking similarly and work together. And they offer... The facilitation skills, they offer the space, they offer help to kind of navigate difficult interpersonal relationships or difficult relationships with local government so that they can get access to space. But it's such gentle, soft touch. And they are just sitting there enabling the community to do this stuff 
together. And the evidence is unbelievable. The amount of, of cohesion and connection, social cohesion that's building out of this, um, the, the reduction in racism in the community, the reduction in votes for, for the hard right parties at, at elections even, you know, um, and people finding agency together, finding communal agency so they'll come together and find a, a, a blank wall in a run-down city block where where they'll they'll paint a mural together and and, mm. and you know that will oh. that will create yes. the connection in the community that's there while they're doing it but it lasts because every time these people walk past or drive past or ride past this mural they get this the return of this warmth this feeling of connection that they got out of it so many of these examples oh. um, and it's just it, it's it's creating a different way of doing politics, a different way of doing the economy. It's creating abundance, shared abundance, where capitalism is is enforcing scarcity on us all, all the time. You know, you've got sharing groups going on here and repairing groups so that, you know, if you've got a, a toaster that doesn't work, you can bring in and somebody can help you learn how to, to fix it. Um, and it, it keeps it going for longer. You can, you can upcycle clothing that somebody else might want to wear. And then you see that piece of clothing on the street that somebody else is wearing and you kind of just feel happy about seeing that. You know, it generates abundance. It generates social cohesion. And it changes everything. Mm. It literally changes the world. It does. Changes it? what's possible to come back to where yes. we started. And I've got echoes of different contexts where I've worked on these things and seen the same stuff as well. So let's talk about these deliberate... You mentioned again, you know, facilitation, facilitation. The, the skills. Yeah, so yeah. let's talk about these deliberative processes and how they work and indeed how we might do more of them. The lens to do it is probably through a woman that you and I are both friends with who you cited yeah. as, as the primary case in Australia, Amanda Carl. Talk to what's really stood out about mm. her work. Yeah, Amanda, kind of almost in some ways sideways or... or you know, not accidentally, but was never really entirely the process that she was about, I think, has, has proven in, in, in such a clear way the difference between the politics as it currently exists and how destructive that is and politics as it could be, democracy as it could be. So she works in, um, as some of your long-term listeners would definitely know because you've interviewed her, in communities in transition out of fossil fuels. She goes into their communities, always at their invitation, and facilitates these conversations there, deliberative conversations, where you start with this asset-based community development approach. You start with a conversation around what is it that our community has going for it? What do we share? What are our common values and the things that we would like to see here? And then she talks to them about what other communities that are in a similar situation around Australia and around the world might be doing. And then she supports the community to, de to determine its own way forward, to come up with proposals that they then want to take to government or to start doing it themselves, to just, you know, um, to come together to set up a community renewable energy cooperative, for instance, um, and to just get on with things. And this is in communities which consistently vote for climate deniers, for proto-fascists, you know, communities which have very high One Nation votes, very high votes for, for the, the right wing and 
used to be known as conservative but are now really pretty hard right-wing mm. parties and the extreme, the explicitly extreme right, these same people, the very same people who vote in that way will come together in a room that Amanda can facilitate and come up with proposals for a swift transition to renewable energy and community <laughs> cooperatives and, you know, this stuff that, that is easy to kind of ridicule as lefty, pinky, crazy stuff that only wealthy people in the inner city want to do. The and city of Gladstone is a bit of a poster child right. now because they've come out with this. Yeah. And that's like headquarters of coal in Queensland. Yeah, One headquarters of, of coal in Queensland, but also headquarters of, of the extreme right yeah. in Queensland as well. Yet here ways. it's worked. And it's worked. And I, and, and I asked Amanda if there was a secret ingredient that sits behind it and what she told me just has just echoed in my head forever since and she just said simply don't ask people to pick a side yeah it's echoed in my head since too god that is just the implications of that for the way we do democracy is absolutely stunning because our democratic system is entirely based on adversarialism it is structured physically and in every other way around adversarialism. As, You've got as a government and an opposition. System. Right, as is the legal system. The market system. Yep. I mean, this is, so if that's yep. the key ingredient. Yep, we've got everything wrong. As you said before, one of the, you know, one of the, the kind of the, the revelations that I had as I was writing it is, it's, is this point that our system actually is designed in such a way that brings out our worst instincts a lot of the time. And we know how to do things in a way that brings out our best because mm. we've done it because it's what Indigenous communities have tended to do since time immemorial. We see it in commons economies, in commons governance ways, in in cooperatives. We know how to do government and economy in a way that brings out our best. Our system is built in such a way that it brings out our worst. It, It tells us that we are purely competitive, selfish, profit maximizing beings and that this is the only way we can ever interact. And it's not true. Yes, that story about ourselves is core to it all, mm. isn't it really? What we believe, well, yeah. what we believe is possible. What we believe we're capable yeah. of is, yeah. is key. Yeah. But we are revising that understanding in we Western are. culture. We are. I mean, you, you talked about the Stanford and Milgram experiments, yeah. for example, that have been well debunked. And indeed, people now have access to the records, the broader records behind those experiments and seen the resistance people showed in the experiments to what they were being asked to do, that that wasn't put into the conclusions Mm. at the time. So we we are coming to grapple slowly with the fact that we're not, (laughs) you know, out to get each other. This is not our nature. Yep. We are partly competitive, and that's really, really important. And that's one of the the things that I think a lot of the, the First Nations kind of philosophers and, and, you know, social philosophers that, that are really building fantastic kind of reputations now are starting to remind us of people like Tyson Yunker Porter and Mary Graham talk about we do have these tendencies in us too and we can't Mm. pretend that we don't Mm. what we need to do is work out how to manage them effectively and that's what they do with you know come back to Tennant Creek that's what it's all about it's about saying we understand that sometimes you just want to hit something sometimes you want to go out and get smashed and And of course you do, because the world is out to get you, frankly. So, yeah, shit happens. What we need to do is work out how we as a community come together 
to help you come back from there and to work out how to, how to bring out the best in you and in us together. Mm. Not assume the worst of you in such a way that it will encourage you to continue to play out being the worst that you could be. Yeah. As someone who was ferociously competitive in sport, yeah, right. mm. I quite, I quite uh, you know, I have a visceral appreciation of that. Yeah. But, but even in football, for example, if you hit someone's head, you'll be held to account. Right. You won't be banished, you'll be welcomed back. You know, it's, it's interesting, right. even in that context right. where we might not think the principles play out, it's a highly cooperative domain. Right. Interesting to think. All right, so you've talked about in your book, and of course it's the, it's the next logical thought, that we need more of these processes, mm. more of the people who can facilitate them yep. Yep. right across the country mm. and beyond, you know, for that matter. Amanda will talk about how it's really a life's work she's done on herself. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts about how we literally, physically, go about having more people be able to facilitate processes mm. like this? To do it. <laughs> that's the, that's, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, we might, we might come to this in more detail, but my theory of change is get out there and do it. Mm.